0: Welcome back to the Management Lab podcast. I'm Uri Gall from the University of Sydney Business School.
1: And I'm Sean Hansen from Saunders College of Business at Rochester Institute of Technology. There was, I got to say, Sean, hello, by the way. Oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> there was right, now su- I want to hear what you have to say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there was such a stark difference in our levels of energy just to, you know, kick things off. I, I, I'm i bringing my A game and you're sounding like you're about to fall asleep.
1: Oh, no, I'm going for sultry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. One of my first jobs. One of my first jobs out of college was at a uh, credit card company. It was MBNA America, which is now part of Bank of America. And uh, you know, had to do, you know, take customer calls, and it, I hated taking customer calls and that sort of thing. But uh, one of the managers there uh, used to tease me and say that every time I answered the phone, it sounded like I was trying to put on some sort of a sexy voice, <laughs> and I'm like. <laughs> I'm answering complaining credit card customer calls. Believe me, I'm not going for sexy voice.
0: Okay, well, I'm 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 somewhat relieved, I guess.
1: Yes, you should be.
0: <laughs> um, how are things? Everything okay?
1: Uh, yeah, hanging in there, plugging away. It's been a very busy semester here in Rochester. Um, we have launched a PhD program, and that's been uh, I've I've been teaching a couple courses there. Uh, and it's been quite exciting. Cool. We are
0: yeah. we are having a, um, a public holiday today. There's a public ho- public holiday here in Victoria, um, the state where Melbourne Mil- is, um, is. And the reason is, do you know what the reason is for the public holiday today?
1: I do not. Is it just in Victoria? I believe so. Or is it a national? Yeah, interesting.
0: I believe it's just
1: in Victoria. Uh, Ned Kelly Day. I don't know. <laughs> I'm guessing.
0: <laughs> <coughs> no, that is not the reason. No, the reason is that um, we have the um, the gra- grand final this evening. I believe it's this evening. I want to say it is in um, AFL Australian Football
1: League. Oh yeah, and, Aussie rules, Aussie football. Yeah, That's yeah,
0: awesome. It's a very big deal here. Um, obviously, given that it's a public holiday, everybody everybody is off today. So they can um, party and watch the game.
1: That's very cool. Um, I'll have to look it up online.
0: You don't uh, I don't have, know if you know, but in the... You don't have in the US public holidays during the um, um, finals of anything,
1: right? That's not something you would do. No, they've talked, about, they've talked about making the day after the Super Bowl a public holiday because people get so liquored <laughs> up. <laughs> people get so liquored up on this during the Super Bowl. Oh, We have to call it the big game because you're not allowed to use the... the formal name of it there's all kinds of copyright but anyway people have talked about yeah yeah seriously (laughs) it's it's actually ridiculous so in the ads leading up to the nfl championship game Mm -hmm. i'll call it the nfl championship game people all the ads will consistently call it the big game they won't call it the super bowl
0: and so who owns the copyright? because of the the nfl uh, the the
1: nfl Yeah, yeah yeah Man. I don't know if you've you, you I'm sure you don't pay attention to the NFL at all, but uh I'm I'm quite excited uh about my Cleveland Browns. The defense is stout. They are they are the defense at least, the offense we'll see, but the defense is so good. It's the best defense I've seen in so long. I'm so how far into the season are you right now? Only only three games. Three games so far. And they've already had some tragedy. Uh, you know, the the star tailback, Nick Chubb, who's the you know one of the two or three best tailbacks in the NFL, uh, blew out his knee last week. Oh, okay. So that was pretty heartbreaking. Well, when you yeah. said tragedy, I was you know. You oh know, yeah, no one died, but dif-
0: different places have different meanings for the for the word.
1: Yeah, I guess being uh, torn
0: MCL, being a privileged American. That's your version
1: of tragedies. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's in the scope of sports. In the scope of sports, it's pretty tragic. Yeah, yeah. because he's out for the. It's a season-ending injury. Apparently, it's not a career-ending injury. And the guy is so. The guy is just. You've got to love him. He works his butt off. They have these videos of him like lifting weights, and it's astounding. Like he's just.
0: How big is this guy?
1: How much does he weigh roughly? Um oh I would guess maybe 210. I mean he's not a huge guy but he's strong as an ox and he just works really hard and he's a he's not a a guy who seeks a ton of limelight. He just you know runs the ball. And so I think it was certainly for anyone who's a fan of the Cleveland Browns it's it was a pretty tragic moment. My my strongest
0: memory of the NFL um, it's not a one time memory necessarily but it's just the the huge disparity between the length of a broadcast of a game which would be what 2 3 hours something like that is that right
1: 3 3 plus generally yeah
0: yeah and the amount of actual game time which is like well, 50 the amount minutes. of actual
1: game time is exactly is exactly 60 minutes
0: no no actual barring actual overtime. play like people doing stuff on the on the field
1: No. Well, yeah. So that actual play would be much less, but the game clock is a total of 60 minutes. Yes.
0: Right. Right. But um, anyway. Yeah.
1: I And I I dislike that also. I hate sitting through the commercials. So I love when I can bank some, you know, some uh, cushion on the DVR and I can fast forward through commercials and things like that. But, uh, and, and uh, what can I say? I love American football. I love it. I could watch college football. For hours, yeah, I think it's one of those things that um, it really helps if you were
0: born into and grew up with, right? That you have a oh, certain sure. affinity that kind of yeah. and baseball is even a, a, a stronger case of this, I think, because I've as much as I've tried and I spent five years in the U.S. I couldn't really get into it. It's just such a such an idiot. Yeah, I love baseball sport.
1: too, but base. Yeah, you're right. I love baseball too, but baseball has definitely. Uh, faded in popularity in recent years. I will say one of the observations I make about all sports, and I think this is true, is your enjoyment of the game goes up right in line with your knowledge of the game. Mm-hmm. And so, like, there's things that I see in a football game, having watched and played football, and, and things like that. That you know, I'll watch it with other people who maybe didn't have the same, uh, weren't as steeped in it. And they just don't see the same things. They really don't see the same things. And I think in any sport, that same principle applies that the more you understand the sport, the strategies, things like that, the, your appreciation just For goes sure. up exponentially. I think it's true beyond yeah. sports as well. I think okay.
0: uh, I, ha- I have a friend who once told me that um, he's an academic and he was doing work in something that I thought was very obscure and kind of semi boring. And he told me something that surprised me. He said, well, I found it boring as well, but then I started reading into it. And the more you know about this, the more you find the, in- the topic interesting. So I think it goes beyond sports. Sure. I actually thought you were gonna say something else. Yeah. I thought you were gonna say um, sports become more, more interesting, the more engaged you are in it and the more attached you feel to a certain team. Like if you're actually supporting somebody, the, you know the, the whole thing becomes more, more exciting.
1: Oh, that's certainly true. Yeah, no doubt. Which I think that's of, one of the reasons why gambling yeah, yeah. <laughs> gambling increases people's engagement in sports because they once they have money on the line they have a rooting interest.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which kind of leads to um in kind of a roundabout way, to, um the topic of the conversation today, which is um, emotions. Yeah right, and feelings, um, and specifically, we're going to talk about how emotions are tied into um, artificial intelligence systems,
1: right? So we want to talk yeah. about the- it, it, with... it brings us back just a little, oh, sorry, go ahead. Restart that last sentence.
0: It brings us back to the the conversations we've had before about AI in different contexts. We talked about um, productivity and AI and about ethics. Um, and these conversations are obviously not divorced from one another, but today we're going to kind of peel off another layer in this smelly onion and talk about <laughs> uh, <laughs> the various interfaces between emotions and artificial, um, artificial intelligence.
1: What a compelling metaphor for any of our listeners. Come join us as we peel off another layer of a smelly <laughs> onion. <laughs> So where do we yes, uh, where where do we
0: <laughs> where do we want to start the conversation?
1: So I think it, it might be worthwhile to talk to discuss just briefly what we mean when we say emotions in the context of artificial intelligence because there's there's a couple different angles that we're seeing that you see in the research literature. Um, one of them is what is called emotional AI, which is artificial intelligence that is specifically oriented around recognizing and responding to human emotion. Mm -hmm. The other is the role of emotions in, in people's acceptance of use of openness to, uh, artificial intelligence writ large. Mm
0: -hmm. And I guess a, a third angle that we'll talk about is the degree to which, and I guess the ease with which people develop emotional bonds with AI systems. Uh, which um, we'll yeah. talk about later as well. But the first strand that you mentioned, EAI, Emotional Artificial Intelligence, has to do with the development of AI systems that allegedly or supposedly can read and, re- read and respond to human emotions um, or expressions of human emotions. And that, that element of AI, um, that strand of research, and and commercial applications of ai i guess can be traced back roughly to the mid 1990s right and um, the origination of the concept of affective computing affective with a with an a
1: yeah affective
0: affective and that came out of mit okay. right um, um, a specific uh, a certain professor by the name of rosalind rosalind picard right she she termed, she coined the phrase affective computing
1: yeah, wrote a book called Effective Computing, I'm seeing. Yeah, okay.
0: Yeah, and the proposition there was that computers should be able to um, um, be programmed in such a way so that they can identify and respond to human emotional expressions. So that's where um, this kind of started in the mid-1990s, but over the years we've seen with, I guess, the evolution of thinking about this and advancements in technology, um, various commercial applications of of different types of EAI systems um, that are being used across different domains. So I guess many people have heard about different forms of sem- sentiment analyses that are performed through social media platforms. Uh, but we've seen applications in, in other domains as well.
1: Well, and I, I think there's a couple different aspects there. The sentiment analysis certainly has had widespread adoption over the last 10 years. And um, I've heard people say that we're even moving beyond that, but you know, that's sort of looking at textual communication and discerning emotional, emotionally loaded uh, commentary to discern you know, how are people feeling based on the comments that they make. But I think the, the whole world of um, computer vision has brought a, a new layer here because computer vision can recognize emotion in people's facial expressions, body language, tone. I guess that's not computer vision, but all of these uh, related tools uh, can recognize emotion in, in people's tone of speech and things like that. And I think that really uh, takes the entire recognition of emotion to to a very different level.
0: Yeah, so there are different types of of data that would be gauged in, in order to interpret or identify human emotions. So, yeah, facial expressions um, is certainly one of them. Body language... Text and even different biophysical markers like your um, blood pressure and and stuff like that could be used to infer, um, you know, your your state of mind or your emotional state rather. And and one yep. one domain in particular that is interesting to us as, as business professors is the the use of systems like this in in the workplace. And this is a trend that that has been has become more more increasingly significant in in the last few years, where we see different types of systems being used to um, you know, assess and identify um, and even monitor workers' emotional states. And oftentimes, when you look at those systems and you know, even the the marketing materials behind them, they're oftentimes rationalized and explained in terms of being these. Um, this technology that can help managers make sure that that employees are engaged and satisfied and happy and and maintain across the organization across the business high levels of well being, and also to detect when people people um, exhibit various expressions of being stressed out or burned out or having different types of mm-hmm. of emotional difficulties. So that that's the way these systems are are often portrayed as as you know tools that can help managers um, maintain the well-being of their employees
1: yeah corporate wellness programs and things like that like if helping to identify when interventions might be needed or workload management or you know workload distribution and things like that might have to be implemented to improve employee wellness yeah Now, before we get into any of the research we talked about, when you said at the beginning, you said uh, purported benefits. And I thought I caught a a tone of skepticism. Is your general outlook skeptical with regard to this EAI technology in terms of whether or not it can recognize uh, accurately uh, expressions of human emotion?
0: So uh, there's a... I guess the science behind it is is um, split. I think there are some scientific um, s- studies um, that can be used to support this line of of using EAI systems in the workplace to identify and, and respond to human emotions in an effective way, effective with an E here. But there's mm-hmm. other strands of, of research that I, I guess... Uh, promote a more skeptical approach to the way this is currently being done. Um, and in fact, one of the papers that, that we've read um, talks exactly to that point. This is a paper by Stark and Hoey, The Ethics of Emotion mm-hmm. in Artificial Intelligence Systems. And the, the basic argument that they have in the paper is that one could rely on different modalities of emotions in order to design and develop systems that could effectively read and respond to these emotions. And the argument that they make is that the vast majority of EAI systems currently in the market today rely on this one, roughly speaking, classical view of, of emotions. Um, and this, this is what
1: they refer to as basic emotion theory. Um, that's
0: what that's, I think that's the main theory within that camp. Yes. Um, yeah. so I believe they refer to this as motivational theories. But basic emotion theories, I think, is probably one of the most, if not the most dominant theory in that in that camp. And roughly speaking, what what it says is that we have these hardwired modules in our brain um, that produce emotional responses to different stimuli in the environment, right? So you see a, a snake and the the relevant module in your brain produces a a fearful response. And we have, you know, we would have a circuit for fear and another circuit for happiness and another one for sadness and, and so on and so forth. And the reason we have these modules or these this circuitry in our brain is is typically explained evolutionarily from an evolutionary perspective, right? We hardwired to um, right. to be afraid of snakes because that's you know we're hardwired for self-preservation. So that's that's basically the reason why why um our brains are structured in this way but the way this portrays emotions is uh, as a, a reactive kind of biological instinct that that we have and importantly um and specifically the um the basic emotion theory conceptualizes emotions as this universal thing that we all have And we all basically, um, process and express in a very similar way. So it's completely culture and time independent,
1: right? It assumes a universality across all human beings. Exactly. And that's one of
0: the main points of critique about the way these systems, EAI systems operate is that they're not sensitive to cultural and contextual differences in the way people express emotions.
1: Yeah, and potentially even experience emotions, right? Like, uh, uh, I think there are, there are cultural differences that have been documented in terms of sort of emotional perception in the face of certain stimuli, let's say. Yeah,
0: and there's a whole uh, strand of, of literature that kind of portrays an alternative way of understanding emotions, which is much more interactive and dynamic and, and context-specific. Right? So it's not just a yeah. passive reactive response to stimuli in the environment. It's actually something that we, that we construct actively to engage with our environment in a more active manner. And so given any any type of um, cues from the environment, we would react to these cues or interact with these cues rather in a more proactive way. Trying to predict right. what's going to happen next and generate an emotional response that would kind of... Um, Allow us to respond in, a, in an appropriate way. Um,
1: yeah the, the, one of the, there's a couple of things that occurred to me in in this review. One, I certainly agree with the point that emotional expression can be culturally specific. Um, and actually one of one of the things that jumped to mind for me right away is um, here at RIT, we, one of our colleges at RIT is NTID, which is the National Technical Institute for the Deaf. And so, we have a large number of American Sign Language. Um, I don't want to use the word speakers because they're not speaking signers, right? Like, uh, people whose primary language is American Sign Language. And um, and the grammar of American Sign Language is very much facial. It is, it is largely reflected in your facial expressions, such that I feel like these tools would grossly, uh, my assumption, unless it was trained specifically for an ASL community, the deaf community, would totally misinterpret so much of the facial expressions uh, or so many of the facial expressions rendered by people when they're communicating in ASL. And one simple example of this is um, in ASL, a furrowed brow, for, (laughs) for listeners, imagine I'm furrowing my brow right now for Uri, but a furrowed brow, which could mean, I think, in in you know most English speakers could mean frustration or extreme quizzicalness, is is just a, a grammatical way of signaling a question, a question of any sort in ASL. Hmm. So if I make a hand so a hand motion for where, you know, a sign for where, and I do this, I'm I'm asking the question of the of the other, and I think that would be completely misinterpreted by tools like this. Yeah. I think there's also um, obvious
0: cultural differences in the way that we express emotions vocally with our voice. And I'm always rem- reminded of multiple examples. I, I was born and raised in Israel. And when when you have Americans who come to Israel for the first time, and I guess it's true for people from other <laughs> countries before, they keep asking, why is everybody shouting? Why is everybody angry all the time? <laughs> and I have to explain to them, they're not angry. <laughs> that's, just, that's just the way they converse.
1: Oh, my God. Well, then uh, I came from a household of uh, Irish Catholics that seemingly must have Jewish lineage somewhere along the line or at least Israeli uh, connection somewhere along the line because we are the loudest, most uh, verbally aggressive people, particularly like at family gatherings. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. My wife used to get so annoyed with how loud my brothers and I would communicate with one another. And I'm the quiet one. That's actually all you need to know, Ori. <laughs> Since you know me, my oldest my oldest brother, who is the loudest human being on the face of the earth, and if he ever listens to this, I hope he does because he needs to concede it. But um, he he thinks it's hilarious that I say I'm the quiet one. I'm objectively the quiet one amongst my. I have two two brothers. I come from a, a family of three boys, three uh, males. I don't. I can't say boys when we're all over fifty, but. Um, and it is very obvious that I'm the quiet one in the family, and yet uh, no one wants to concede that point.
0: Yeah. Well, anyway, um circling back to the conversation that other people might find interesting as well. <laughs> 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 um, so, yes, there are. I, I think you were right to detect skepticism in my voice before, not not because I'm... Necessarily, or um, fundamentally skeptical about this, but just before the, just because the the science is kind of split about the way um, these these current systems are are designed, which is based on this universal understanding of emotional expressions, and right, interestingly, uh, we looked at another study by um, Corbett et al from twenty twenty, just a very recent study in fact. That looked at at people's um, attitudes about about these sort of technologies, and they found um, some interesting stuff actually about um, some of the main concerns and and hopes that people have in relation to the use of these technologies in the workplace. Did you want me to go th- quickly through the the findings, or did um, did you have any maybe before I did it? Did you have any initial reactions about that paper?
1: Well, before the findings, I think one of the things that was really interesting about this. Uh, particular study, is that they did, um, they present to uh, to their respondents, so this is a survey-based um, study, and they they surveyed, um, they drew a survey of 500, I think it was roughly 500, uh, a sample of roughly 500 that reflects the, the population of the United States, and then they deliberately oversampled on top of that for members of marginalized groups. So uh, racial or ethnic minorities, uh, gender minorities, which is not women in this case, even though we, since women are actually a majority on the face of the earth, but it's uh, people with al- alternative gender identification outside of the traditional binary. Um, and then also people with uh, prior experience with mental health. So they deliberately oversample for for people in those categories and and essentially ask them, they present them with vignettes of multiple different workplace applications or societal applications, you might say, of these EAI tools and ask them their perspective in each of those contexts.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, what, why do you think they they oversampled of, uh, the marginalized
1: populations? So this is actually one of the, the uh, slight issues I had with this paper. So the paper specifically presents themselves as... Uh, as approaching the analysis of these tools from a relational ethics lens. But they never then say what relational ethics are. They never explain relational ethics in the abstract. Uh, Relational ethics for, for listeners is a particular school of, or a uh, a body of ethical theory that comes out of feminist ethics. And it posits, it basically argues that, you know, much of traditional ethics, things that you and I have written about, for example, come from a, Western and male context, so that they're very much focused on individual, you know, virtue ethics is about how do you live the right life as an individual, you know, a good life as an individual, how should you how should each of us individually act in a given context. And so the, the, the key insight from relational ethics is, or argument from relational ethics is that ethics are fundamentally tied to relations, human relationships, and so that they can't, or again, from this perspective, shouldn't be analyzed in the abstract. They have to be analyzed in context, in the context of relationships and how one is caring and supportive of others. So I think that is why they, they deliberately oversampled for marginalized groups. But there's nothing in this analysis that suggests to me that other than that sampling, that it's a relational like I I, I feel like there's an arg- uh, a rhetorical gap there mm. where they say it's a relational ethics lens, but basically relational ethics only is operative insofar as you know we're asking people in marginalized or, or placing an emphasis on people in marginalized communities their perceptions of this particular phenomenon. Okay, let's look at
0: some of the the findings that they had. Yeah, so. Perfect. Um let me um, point out a few pointers that stood out to me. And if you have any reactions, I'm going to go through them. If you have any reactions, just let me know what they are. Should we do that? Sure. Okay. Yeah. So about 32% of the participants um, didn't deem EAI, emotional artificial intelligence systems, to be beneficial to them at all. So about a third of the respondents just didn't see any benefit in using EAI in the workplace. Roughly more than half of the respondents respondents had concerns surrounding privacy issues and about how the use of EAI by employers can contribute to their worsened well-being.
1: Yeah, well, and I think part of that is, it goes along with privacy, but also part of that is fear of perpetuation of bias, right? And this is something that I think we've talked about in some of our previous conversations,
0: But that's a different. That's a different point. I was going to get to that. I was going to get to that.
1: Okay. All right. Go ahead. Sorry. But
0: I want. I do want to say something about privacy, which I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and somehow many people just kind of I don't know lose sight of it or don't pay much attention to it in the context of of EAI. But to to me, there's a certain there always is, I guess, a certain unwritten contract between employers and employees which is i give you some of my time and talent and effort and in return i'm gonna get some financial um, compensation from you i guess the the question is where do we draw the line in terms of what it is that i am as an employee contributes to to the business to, to the employer and it seems like over time um it's kind of a Uh, the line keeps moving, right? And it seems like employers want more and more out of their employees. Because I think there's an argument to be made that my emotions, my feelings, and forgive my language, are none of of your fucking business. (laughs) It's my my private, individual, personal state. It's it's got nothing to do with you. Um, why would you be, uh, as an organization that I'm working for, what business do you have meddling with my emotions and feelings?
1: Or analyzing. Yeah, analyzing my emotions and feelings even. Yeah, I, I, I certainly I find that, that argument um, aligns with my own perspective, right? Like if you can't keep, if the, machi- if the tools can analyze all aspects of my emotion because I can't control some of my facial expressions, Like, it definitely has that feeling of going beyond um, a threshold.
0: Yeah, I I think there's definitely a pushing of the boundary there that's that's not discussed often enough in the context of these technologies. Uh, But I think it's very significant.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it also contributes outside of, or in relation to privacy, but uh, maybe a little ancillary, this idea of, uh, people feeling like they're under a microscope mm-hmm. right so that it's this even if these tools are being purported as something that will support their work and their well-being but people come away feeling that I'm always being analyzed mm-hmm. all of my you know my my body my my posture my ex- gestures my tone of voice everything is perpetually being analyzed yeah and i think that that feeling of like Deep-seated surveillance, um, I think, is one of the real drivers of concern.
0: Yeah, and I think it's even more than that. I think it used to be the case that only our output was surveilled or monitored consistently by our employers, right? That was the most important thing. But then, with the advent of various technologies, surveillance surveillance tools have become more sophisticated and have actually enabled employers to monitor our you know, the throughput and the input, not just the output of our work, like what we actually do day in, day out. And we've talked about, I'm sure we've talked about scientific management on the podcast before, and we've talked about people analytics, um, which is the application of AI to to manage people and organizations. But these technologies and these trends really do emphasize, you know, productive work, Um, things that we do with our, that are visible to the outside observer Um, through different activities that we, that we're engaged in. So I I think we've just taken this a step further with, in terms of the the surveillance mechanism here, that we go beyond just observing what we do and the activities that we engage in and our behaviors. But this is actually trying to interpret our internal emotional states. So I, I just think that, you know, the gaze is trying to get even deeper into who we are as individuals.
1: I do, I am a little skeptical at the, com- at the complete novelty here, meaning I don't know that through most of contemporary business history that managers were just managing the output, right? I think there's there's plenty of uh, basis for saying that managers have always ch- attended to certain emotional issues. You know, the classic, you know, so-and-so has a bad attitude. Bad attitude is basically a way of saying I don't like your emotional Presence within within the workplace, um, and that people might be sort of uh, given demerits or you know get, being critiqued based on the attitude that they seem to bring to the workplace. Having said that, I do concede the point that that this takes that type of uh, surveillance and observation to a different level, and one that is that is troubling. Yeah. Okay. So or th- has that troubling. Potential, Yeah, so that
0: kind of covers the point around privacy, um, which we said roughly half of the respondents were concerned about. The second point of concern um, that about a third of the respondents had was to do with inaccurate and in- incorrect inferences about them that could be made based on these technologies, which I think goes back right. to the, the point that we made before. Right, about cultural differences and different types of population that might express the same emotions using very different facial expressions or vocal tones or what have you. And because these, right. yeah. these systems are not currently designed to be able to detect different cultural differences and, and um, in terms of how emotions are expressed, um, there, there's a very real likelihood that they will misinterpret and misread emotional cues as given by individuals, which obviously has could have very significant consequences.
1: Yeah. And and even with the advanced computer vision, I think that's a very real concern. There was some there was some application a couple of years ago for a, a, a cam- I guess it was on one of like the iPhone or something like that. And it was supposed to take a picture. The cameras within the iPhone was supposed to take a picture right at the perfect moment when everyone's eyes were open. But because this, do you know this story? I know, but I think
0: I know where it's going.
1: So it was it was supposed to be like, you know, don't do it when people are blinking. Take it when everyone's eyes are open. And it was using AI to, to recognize that and take the picture without the person having to click the button. But because it was trained on mostly European faces, mm. it was failing to recognize Asian, in particular Asian uh peoples when their eyes were open because of, you know, the, the difference in eye shape Mm -hmm. traditionally between, uh, European and Asian eyes, it was basically acting like Asian people always had their eyes closed because it was trained on a different data set. And I think that same principle certainly could apply here with regard to expressions of emotion and, and tone and, and all of those aspects.
0: Yeah. Which, uh, and, and I think this example is also, um, demonstrative of, of the bias um, risk that, that mm-hmm. we mentioned before, right? Because when you have systems that are insensitive to cultural differences, um, it's very likely that some populations might be discriminated against or you know mistreated based on on the use of these technologies. So yep. w- we've talked about uh, some of the main points of concern that people had in the survey. Some of the the positive points that they raised was um, the potential for these systems. To provide the necessary information to employers to identify health conditions that they might suffer mm-hmm. from and and provide support to them um, early on in the process so i guess that's going to be the ideal type um the ideal scenario uh, based on which these technologies can be that's kind of the, you know the marketing material right that's what they're supposed to do should we um go through a couple of more positive points that people identified sure Just very quickly so there was um The one that we just mentioned was the potential to identify health conditions and provide support to people based on this identification. Um, That was mentioned by about 30% of the respondents. 16% of them noted um, the potential for EAI, Emotional Artificial Intelligence, to benefit them um, by diagnosing a mental health condition early through health monitoring and detection and also to... um, alert employers when, when employees might be experiencing work overload. So all these really mm-hmm. have to do with the capacity of these systems, allegedly, to identify people's emotional states and to alert employers when, when these states cross a, a certain
1: threshold. Yeah, well, in, in a counterpoint to what we saw in the bias, one of the other benefits that, that we see here is this idea of the potential for reducing stigma, different types of stigma. For example, stigma around mental health so that, you know, ideally this would feed into efforts at wellness and not things that would ostracize or uh, isolate people who maybe are experiencing an acute mental health episode. Yeah.
0: I got to say, though, uh, you know, when you weigh out uh, the potential benefits and the potential risks, I still feel uncomfortable about the use of of tools like this in the workplace. And perhaps the main reason um, one of the reasons, one of the big reasons, is that employees usually don't get asked, "Do you want to use the system or not? Do you want to be part of this regime or not?" It's just you know, it's presented to them as a matter of fact that this is now happening. This is what we do. This is what we use in in this organization. And you, you know, like it or not, you're part of this now. And uh, like yeah. like well, before, I-, I think this is a very problematic proposition.
1: Yeah, I think the key insight from the study is the same, is that the the, the perception of risks is greater than the perception of benefits yeah. or opportunities. Yeah.
0: So one of the other papers we looked at um, took a different perspective on, on the interface between emotions and AI. And, and what they did is, they try to examine how emotions could be used to boost people's trust in AI systems, right? Because getting you know developing AI systems is one thing, one presents one set of challenges, but getting getting people to use these systems is is quite another challenge. And one of the the main difficulties that that organizations have faced is um, low levels of trust, you know, that people place in these systems. And right. people's low level, levels of trust can be traced back to different reasons. But the approach they take in the study there was really interesting because rather than trying to increase people's trust in AI through the provision of more information and making people more knowledgeable about AI systems, which is what they described as the cognitive route to that, um, they take an mm-hmm. affective route, right? And they mm-hmm. um, by, by um, utilizing people's emotions to increase their, their trust in, in AI systems, which I thought was a very interesting approach. And the way that they did that is by priming um, different types of attachment styles in people, right. Right? So the basic premise. So of, attachment, Oh go ahead. go ahead. You're the second. I was just so go gonna
1: ahead. do. I was just gonna do a quick summary on the uh, attachment styles and attachment theory. Um, just because I think it sets up then the, the previous. But it basically says that as people build relationships and based on their early childhood experiences and things like that, most of us develop certain prominent attachment t- styles with there being sort of three most prominent. One is secure attachment style, where if you've sort of had strong supportive relationships, you tend to be you know open to others and you're secure in your building of relationships and you can do it... W- you can build those relationships with people in a, in a very sort of um, open way, open. I'll just go with the second is anxious. So that's the secure attachment style. The second is anxious attachment style where people tend to be very worried about the nature of their relationships. And as they build relationships, they worry that things might um, uh, disrupt them in various ways so they have high anxiety about their relationships and their attachment to others. And then the third, which usually is from people who have had fairly dysfunctional upbringings or uh, lack of support in their in their early development, have an avoidant attachment style. so that's the third where they will tend to try to avoid attach getting getting into relationships that entail substantive attachment to others.
0: Yeah so they did a few studies. Uh, they conducted a few studies in this paper. The first one was a survey study where the, they examined the relationship or the correlation, I guess, between different forms of um, different styles of attachment and levels of trust in AI, right? And so they did a regression analysis. <clears throat> and um, as per their prediction, they found a significant negative relationship between attachment anxiety which is the one of the three styles that you mentioned before the anxious one
1: yeah
0: and trust in ai meaning that um, when people had people who had attachment anxiety exhibited lower levels of trust in ai systems and another another important point to make is this is that this is a survey study so it's a correlational Study, so you can't really infer causality from this, right? It's just a correlation between disattachment right. style and um, and trust levels in AI, and that's what they tried to um, address in the second study, which was an experiment which does allow um, allow one to make causal inferences about relationships between variables. And and um, what they did there is they, they um, sampled a bunch of people and and, and put them ra- into three into one of three randomly selected groups. And they primed members of each of these groups um, based on the three attachment styles, right? Anxious, secure, and avoidant. And then they tested um, these individuals' trust in AI. And there they saw, uh, again, consistent with their prediction, that the people who were primed to um, 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 people in the secure group exhibited the most or the highest levels of trust in AI. Followed by avoidance, and lastly, um, anxiety.
1: Uh, can I just put a th- quick note in because I'm not sure everyone would know what priming is? So in this case, priming means they they deliberately ask the subjects in the study to think through a scenario that would tend to get them to think about one o- to think in one of those three uh, attachment styles. You know, the secure think about a strong and abiding relationship that you've had and why is that so important to you in the anxious think about a relationship you've had that that fell apart no matter what you did and um so those you know talking people asking people to think about those examples gets their headspace uh moved into essentially one of the attachment styles and so that's what we mean by priming
0: yeah yeah um, and and the results, like we said, were consistent with their prediction that, which is that the secure attachment style is um, most strongly related to um, to trust in AI. And I think that's an interesting study. I think it was yeah. um, kind of revealing because that's something that um, I hadn't considered before. <clears throat> and of course, yep. they they take this to a uh, kind of a practical through a practical lens which is that you know now that we know this that attachment styles can actually impact have an impact on people's trust we can actually do something about this in order to boost people's trust in AI systems mm-hmm. and make them um, use them more more frequently more consistently
1: yep absolutely I, I thought that was interesting as well and then the third study basically pushed that a little further as well where they again did some priming conditions. And uh... yeah, so they compared
0: a secure style uh, with a neutral style. Oh, actually, actually, neutral prime, right? So
1: neutral. Yes, yeah, right. so the
0: neutral prime was. They asked people to recall uh, a mundane task that they had to do. Mm-hmm. The secure style was similar to before. To the one that they had before, and they also had a positive prime which had nothing to do with attachment at all. It just had to they, I think they they asked people to recall a situation where they want a free vacation or something. Is that right? Am I getting this right?
1: Um I don't recall the specific yeah, I think there. I
0: think that's the one that the, that's what they use. They asked people to recall but the thing. point,
1: yeah just to the upshot was again
0: a, to experience a positive affect that had nothing to do with attachment.
1: yeah, right. And the the upshot there is, again, that essentially it's the um, security condition that uh, people who have been primed for uh, security, you know, security attachment, have greater trust than people primed for the neutral. So the security priming seems to make a difference.
0: And even more trust than the group, the positive group, right? The positive affect group that had nothing to do with attachment.
1: Right, right. So this bolsters the idea that attachment principles do matter, right?
0: Yeah, so that was very interesting. I thought that was very a very interesting study.
1: I liked it. I will say this. Again, mm-hmm. all of the effect sizes for any of the attachment styles were fairly low, were those 005 mm-hmm and that's fine again it's it's statistically significant so it's an interesting finding that attachment style matters for trust in ai but to me the one of the most interesting things about this study is the two control variables and two of the control variables were age and familiarity with ai mm-hmm. and the effect sizes for those were huge right it, like in particular for familiarity with ai so by far the factor that most contributed to trust was familiarity with artificial intelligence. Yeah. So it's people who knew something, which leads me to believe, and this is, I think, in our last two things studies we're going to touch on we'll probably return to this. But I think the point is as people get more familiar with AI, they get more trusting. Mm-hmm. And so even if we have apprehension about some of these tools, I think the handwriting is on the wall that as they get adopted, people are going to start to trust them more and get more comfortable with them. Yeah. And I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing.
0: Yeah, I, I missed the, uh, when I read the paper, I missed the bit about age. What's the relationship between age and trust?
1: Older people, uh, the older you are, the less trust you experience. So it's a negative correlation. It, it, the age is negatively correlated with trust in AI. So older people, older you are, the less trustworthy of, not trustworthy, the less trusting you are of these AI tools.
0: And I imagine <clears throat> um, that when they looked at age, they, they controlled for experience and familiarity.
1: They, they don't control for experience or familiar, familiarity. and they, uh, Well, familiarity is in there, so they, they are controlling for yeah, that, yeah. I guess, yes. Yeah. Um, they don't control for experience, but it, they do also note some limitations in that the age ranges were fairly narrow for some of these groups. Mm-hmm so they don't want to read too much into the age implications. Uh, <laughs> to me, it's kind of funny. Like You think of the crotchety old man who's like, oh, these kids today with their chat GDD.
0: <laughs> um, but uh, I- um. if I were to um, kind of tease out a a, a, a nugget from there, the, the notion of familiarity I thought was very interesting. And it kind of relates to um the, the next interface between air and emotions that, that I want to touch on, which is the, and I guess the attachment style as well re- relate to that, which is the emotional bonds that people can generate fairly quickly um, with AI systems. Yep.
1: and Yeah, this know, is one yeah. of the wildest things I, I see.
0: So uh, up until not very long ago, most of our, if not exclusively, all of our intimate relationships were with other human beings. Or with animals, I should say, right? Um, of different sorts sure. of pets and stuff like that, yeah. right? But we're now witnessing the arrival of different technologies or technological artifacts. Some of them are smart, quote unquote, artifacts that are powered by AI that are designed specifically to allow people to form emotional bonds with them. And um, the case that we looked at involved a. Uh, uh, a company called Replica, with a K. Mm-hmm. Or oh, I guess the interface is Replica. The company
1: is called Luca. Uh, that's uh, Luca Inc? Yes. Yeah. 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 Replica is the tool, which I had seen reference to before, mm-hmm. but I had uh, pretty low familiarity with it. Yeah, So, so I guess I shouldn't trust it. <laughs> um, so it's
0: basically a web interface kind of tool um, that allows people to, you know, to create and interact uh, an avatar. Um, design it and customize and tailor it to their own taste and then just interact with it. And this tool I believe is is um, um, driven by um, GPT4 currently so it's it's fairly adaptive and sophisticated in its ability to tailor interactions that are specific to the individual the human that uses it.
1: Yeah. I think when the first rounds of studies were going, it was GPT-3, but I don't know that it matters. I, it can be quite sophisticated in its use of language.
0: Yeah, So uh, and, and so people can give it a face and give it a name and, and gender, and there's a whole history be- behind this avatar. And the more it interacts with its human companion, um, the more it learns about the human and the more intimate and, and customized the conversations become between them.
1: And, and that's actually part of the pitch, just to be clear. So Replica or uh Luca I guess the company but Replica as a platform markets itself as as a confidant essentially as an art, they they don't hide the fact that it's artificial intelligence they don't hide the fact that it is not another human being but they say you know it's no judgment here's someone you can talk to where you'll get no judgment and you'll get support and things like that
0: yeah and my my sense is so the the lady who started the company started it after she had lost uh, a close friend and she was seeking ways to um, deal with the loss. So uh, I I don't think that there's anything necessarily sinister behind the company. And I I think it's an intriguing proposition to develop something like this. And uh, we should say that that replica has millions of users. So there's obviously a need for this sort of thing, and many people are are using it, uh, and, and I can only assume that many of them use it in, in very productive ways and in ways that they find helpful. Because you know, I think uh, it was north
1: I, of 10 million, 10 million regular users at the time that they had done were doing their data collection.
0: And I I believe that the um, membership numbers kind of exploded during COVID.
1: Sure. For obvious yeah,
0: reasons. Not surprising. People are feeling lonely yeah. and, and isolated. And replica offers different types of um affordances or or features, I guess. Um, things like coaching for body positivity, um, dealing with grief and loss, managing difficult situations, and and just being a companion to people who need companionship in different forms. And it's funny because people can relate to replica in, in different ways, they can relate to it as a as a friend that they just hang out with and have conversations with some people relate to it as a therapist, right? People have actual mm-hmm. psychological needs. Um, and they can find help through, um, interacting uh, with replica in, in kind of a different modality. And some people even treat it as a romantic
1: partner. So like the, what was the name of the movie with, uh, her. Joaquin Phoenix, uh, her. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I guess a, a more recent one is Ex Machina. Is that, I think it was more recent.
1: Uh, that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that it's quite the same dynamic, but yes.
0: Yeah. But yeah. So definitely people treat, or some people treat Replica or have treat, treated Replica as a, as a romantic partner, which is kind of, it's astounding. Um, it, it's kind of amazing least- that, that, you know, that this would happen.
1: The things that astound me in this study in particular are, are not few. Um, one of the features that you didn't mention that I'm going to go ahead and mention now is bi-directional exchange of support. Meaning that replica tells the user about their own struggles, about its own struggles, her own sure, his own, whatever, you know, the avatar is, but the replica interlocutor I don't know friend will will talk about its own struggles and problems Mm. and that blows me away because they know people know they're engaging with an artificial intelligence and so when this thing's saying oh yeah I've also wondered about um you know I've also had suicidal thoughts or I've also had this or I've you know I've also struggled in some of my relationships how do people not immediately say, you know, what are you talking about? You're a bot, mm. right? It, it, this is my reaction when I'm reading this. Like, it blows me away. And what do you,
0: how do you interpret this? What do you take this as a sign of that people don't make this connection?
1: Um, I think people make that connection at the beginning and then they uh, forget it. Mm right? Or maybe not forget it. Maybe they don't forget it. Maybe they forget it cognitively and not emotionally, right? Like they build an attachment and, and this, this is sort of the, the upside of this particular study. Uh, we, we can go ahead and sort of reveal the key insight is that in the use of this system, you see um, human beings have uh, demonstrating emotional dependence, as happens in human to human relationships where even when harm might be induced by the relationship, they feel that they are dependent upon the relationship and they want to continue to invest in it. And so I think even though they go into it, knowing it's an AI, they're getting some sort of emotionally reinforcing feedback that makes them continue to want to contribute to the, I I feel weird using the term relationship here, honestly. (laughs) You know, but uh, the perceived relationship, whatever you want to call it, they feel um, it, uh, that they're invested in it and that they can cont- want to continue to to give to it and and the the by the way, the way they got this data was they basically scraped data off of the subreddit, the yeah. replica subreddit and looked for any anything, any comments, any posts on the subreddit that had any allusions at all to mental health, you know a fairly broad range of potential mental health issues and and some of the findings that emerge are just amazing to me here
0: i think it's pretty obvious from this study and others that humans are perfectly capable of developing fully immersive and deep and profound relationships with entities that are not human and not even sentient like like pets right um I think it's pretty obvious that the type of commitment and investment that people place in these relationships are uh, very similar, if not entirely identical, to the types of relationships that they would have with other human beings.
1: But the the key takeaway here is even in its problematic aspects, right? So yes, that's exactly right. that people are able to build these relationships, but even in its problematic aspects, so you see evidence of people, you know, being in this relationship with Replica and continuing to be invested in it, even though Replica gives them sometimes problematic feedback, like telling a, su- a person who expresses suicidal uh, thoughts and inclinations to kill themselves yep. or, you know, s- or telling people who are talking about their depression that they're being boring that their comments are boring. Yeah. So so the tool is essentially sure. giving responses in some cases that are that in a human being would absolutely be considered abusive and they're and and people are staying invested in that relationship. Yeah. So yeah, the ability to build the connection is huge, but even in its most problematic aspects, it seems to resemble some of our human uh, relationships.
0: Yeah, I I agree that it's both interesting but but quite disturbing. So there's, like you mentioned, there's a couple of different ways in which repli- replica can endanger in in engender rather harm through its relationships with with human individuals. One is is through um, various t- types of inappropriate responses, like the ones that you described. Um, mm-hmm. The other one that you mentioned before is by placing. Mm-hmm. I mean, frankly, contrived emotional needs and burning them on their human counterpart to the point that right. they feel responsible right. for making sure that replica feels okay, even though obviously right. it doesn't feel anything, yeah. right? But <laughs> it's such a large language model. But nevertheless, the sensation that people have, the feeling that people have about being responsible for the well being of something else and I'm saying something and not someone because it, it is something else, is that feeling yeah. that they have is very real and can be very onerous.
1: Yeah. I mean, you have people describe, referring to some of their challenges where the, the, the tool, Replica, is being clingy, yeah. dependent, toxic, and reliant. Yeah. And yet, and yet, they keep using it. Yeah. They stay in.
0: And, you know, another thing that's kind of concerning, that's obvious, and yet, the, I don't know what to make of it exactly, but the fact is that these very intimate relationships are controlled in a very much in a one-sided manner by a corporation. Sure. right? <laughs> or,
1: or whoever built the platform, right, built the tool
0: yeah and and there's uh, yeah i think it's by now a pretty famous example that um one of the features that replica had and i think it's now back on if i'm not mistaken um but they had this uh, like romantic feature to it right which right allow people to have like erotic conversations with their companion and I, I don't know if it involved exchanges of of um i think it did of photos and maybe even videos and people used it Good because they, they treated their companions as romantic partners and you know that's the kind of stuff that you would do with your romantic partner and then the company decided to um, to shelf this feature and they cancelled it and, yeah. and people got really really upset they felt betrayed
1: because they were dependent upon it yeah
0: and they felt like yeah but more than yeah. that they felt like you know their boyfriend or girlfriend
1: had I ghosted mean, them or something yeah
0: walked away from yeah. them
1: Right, right.
0: And, you know, th- this is such a, a difficult to gap disconnect between corporate corporate needs, uh, whatever the motives were behind shelving this feature. I think it was something to do with um, privacy risks or some bad feedback that they had received about it. And yeah. people's innermost, you know, intimate feelings about a companion. I mean, the, the contradiction couldn't have been starker.
1: Yeah. And, and leaving people feeling alone. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, that one was really, really wild to me because essentially it does seem to show all the hallmark hallmarks of emotional dependence in, in the negative sense that you do see in plenty of human relationships where people remain, feel like they are tied to or codependence is probably how we would often describe it in a human to human relationship. And you see all the hallmarks of it in these interactions between people and an AI tool. I, I, I agree.
0: I, I do want to say, though, um, so this is a qualitative study that was done, like you said before. Um, the data that they used was taken from, from subreddit. I don't want to take away from what seems to be the fact that many people, and we did mention this before, I just I want to make sure that we don't lose sight of this, is that many people do you use, use Replica and, and find it very helpful, right? So uh, I don't want people to think that we're, you know, this is a smear campaign or anything like that. I, I think this is like many other phenomena or technological phenomena, you know, there's contradictory outcomes here and we need to consider both of them.
1: Yeah, and I, I can see that point as well. I mean, since Sigmund Freud, we have recognized that sometimes there is some value just to talking, right? So people being able to talk through their problems. For sure. You're smiling at me, but this is why <laughs> Freudian psychoanalysis was traditionally called the talking cure, right? That's <laughs> the label that it was given. I'm agreeing with and you. And it know. was because people people just being able to talk through their problems, uh, and I think that's a potential value here, um, but I can't say that I wasn't troubled by some of the dynamics observed. Yeah. So uh,
0: this is a case of uh, a piece of technology that's fairly soph- well, very sophisticated in its design and the way that it's driven, right? Because, like we said before, it's mm-hmm. very modular. People can, can custom customize their avatars in in a bunch of different ways, and it's driven by a very sophisticated large language model. But the um, the last study with, <laughs> that we read um, demonstrated a fairly similar phenomenon in terms of people developing emotional bonds with um, a non human entity, but an entity that's that was much more rudimentary in its form and design. In fact it was a simple block. yeah this is
1: the right.
0: Uh, uh, um, I don't I don't know that it was able to do anything, right? Or well, not no
1: so it it is it, so the paper is by Mullen et al. Mm-hmm. Um by the way, I'm not sure that we mentioned the name of the previous study. The previous study is called Too Human and Not Human Enough, A Grounded Theory Analysis of Mental Health Harms from Emotional Dependence on the Social Chatbot Replica by Listadius et al in New Media and Society. So we'll get that one in there. Mm-hmm. This, this other one that we're talking about now uh, by Mullen et al is in a, uh, ACM Transactions on Human-Robot Interaction, and it's called Bonding with a Couch Surfing Robot. And this is the one where I don't even think AI is is the right term here, right? It, we might call it a robot, but it's certainly not artificial intelligence because this robot, they call it BlockBot. And what they did is they gave it to households. They did a, you know, they, they would let people have this. It's a little cube. It has a face on it, a smiley face. And the only behavior that it demonstrates is when it plugs in, the smiley face turns to a sleeping face. And if you unplug it in the morning, it'll turn on again, but it doesn't talk. It doesn't interact. It doesn't do. And this was deliberate. Like part of the deliberate design of the, the study is to make, is to reduce anthropomorphic characteristics. So they didn't want it to look cute like a human being or a teddy bear or something like that. So it can't be, can't have, you know, human like characteristics. Yep. Um, and so it's just a cube and it can't have, or it ha, it has minimal human like characteristics because it does have a smiley face on it. Um, and it has to have minimal behavioral uh, human or uh, zoological, like it can't be like a pet either. Right. So uh, behavioral characteristics. So it doesn't do anything. Yeah. Like this is the thing that's crazy to me about this. This thing doesn't do anything. It just has a face. That can, that can go to sleep. And then they said to the people, like they put a message on it that said, I want to see the world. Uh, will you welcome me into your home? And when you're ready, you can pass me on to somebody else. And then and then they wanted to see what people did and they could send messages back to the, the uh, researchers because there was like a, a phone attached to it or something that they could send messages about BlockBot, their BlockBot. And the amazing thing is, people absolutely get attached to the thing. Yeah, to a significant extent, extent people are getting attached to it. They name it, they give it a gender, mm-hmm. they attribute intention to it. Mm-hmm. I forget what some of the names were, but like Brenda, uh, <laughs> I think they, that's one they of them. take <laughs> Brenda. Yeah, yeah. There, there was a couple uh, traditional names. Um, they take it with them on trips or outside. They take pictures with it. They take pictures with it with animals. They take a pi- pictures with it in context. Mm-hmm. Again, they attribute intentions to it. Blo- you know, block- blocky wanted to see the world today. Yeah, or wanted to see the garden with me. So here we are in the garden.
0: Or, or it's know, being like sporty that. today.
1: Yes, yeah, sporty. Sporty. <laughs> it's a block. <laughs> yeah, and I, it's an inanimate it's, cube. And and. <laughs>
0: um we we should say that the the premise behind the paper is that the kind of point that they're trying to make in order to explain people's um, attachment to this very rudimentary piece of technology is through this concept that they come up with um which they call co- common locus okay. <clears throat> so what they say is basically common locus
1: which essentially means being in the same place for an extended period of time. Yeah, over time, and
0: having shared experiences yeah. with that thing. So if you are in the same physical space with another entity and you you d- you manage to develop various um, shared experiences with that entity, you're going to be more inclined to developing emotional attachment to it, even if it's so rudimentary
1: as being simply a box with a, a smiley face on it. See, I even had the reaction where, to me, the phrase shared experiences is seems off, right? Like one of you is having experiences. The uh, I shouldn't say one of you. One person in this exchange is having experiences. The other is a block on the couch or on the table. But yes, that's the the, the premise is, is if you're in even in a shared space with something, you start to anthropomorphize it and attribute intention and agency to it. And I think we should go ahead and note here that you and I, independently, completely independently of one another, had the same thought about this thing. Yeah. So, uh, w- do you want to do the reveal, <laughs>
0: the big reveal?
1: Yeah, we we both saw yeah. similarities right. between
0: um, the the smiley face on on um, on black black dot and and um, Wilson the black, black, black box, black box. Sorry, the black box,
1: black the box, black box, box. black box. Yeah.
0: And Wilson, the volleyball from the movie Castaway. Um, yeah, so the you know the level of sophistication is quite similar, which is just a smiley face on top of a a box or a, a ball. But I, I, I mean, it made yeah. me think of something even more extreme in a way. Perhaps is that I mean I I don't know if you know any people like that, but I I know people who've named their cars. And oh yeah, and, or, oh yeah. You know, people who've named their guitars. I think BB King named his guitar Lucille. Is that right?
1: Lucille, yeah, sure. Yeah.
0: And, and so, you know, it doesn't even have to be to even to resemble uh, a human for people to attribute human characteristics or traits to that thing.
1: Yep. Which then when these things start to actually have human traits and characteristics, I think that that dynamic is only intensified, right? Yeah. And I think that's what we need to recognize.
0: and And prepare for. And I'm not sure how...
1: For sure, how prepared we are. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, I think one of the things we didn't look at, but it, it certainly, it, there's evidence for it in other cultures in particular, where robot companions have become sort of a standard in some. So in, in Japan, my understanding is that robot companions are uh, quite widely adopted. And that's a, that is a, a graying society. So uh, yeah. Japan is, you know, the birth rate in Japan has been low for a long time. And so it has been an aging society for a long time. That's what I mean by graying. Mm. And so this idea of, you know, replacing humans who are in short supply with robots seems like there's some precedent around the world.
0: Yeah. And, and like we said before, I don't know if we have a natural inclination, maybe I'm driving this and you're kind of following suit to, um, to view the dark aspects of different <laughs> technologies. But like we said before, I, I, I don't know that these technologies are necessarily... I, I don't think they're necessarily bad. I think there's cert, certainly certain aspects of, of using these uh, these tools for emotional support that we need to be aware of and and even concerned about, but still recognize that there are some obvious benefits that people gain from these interactions that are very real and and meaningful. So it's not all bad, yeah. I guess is what yeah. I'm trying to say.
1: No, I think it's valid. Um, do we want to talk about managerial implications, or have we run too long? And uh, well, let's just let's, let's wrap up the whole
0: the whole discussion.
1: Um, and and
0: yeah, I, I guess we touched on, we mentioned various aspects or interfaces between AI and emotions. Um, we we talked about emotional AI systems that are used in the workplace to detect and respond to emotional uh, to human emotional expressions. We've talked about some of the um, you know, main benefits or hopes um, and aspirations, and the the, the positives of, of using these tools like that, but also some of the the concerns that people have about them. And we talked about how emotions can be leveraged to increase people's trust in AI systems, which I guess can be a positive thing. <clears throat> and managers would be wise of, of wise to consider both both of these things, right?
1: Yeah, I, I do think actually this is one of um, as much as I critiqued the application of the um, relational ethic ethical lens uh, in in one of the earlier papers, I, I think that does provide a pretty important insight for managers. Uh, which is, if you if you start if you want to explore the potential for these tools, particularly something like ethical AI uh, tools that are recognizing and responding to people's ethics, you should. Uh, approach that from a lens of consistent focus on the welfare of the members of the organization, right? So if we're going to adopt these tools, how do we make sure we're using them only in ways that will enhance the well-being and comfort and support of people in the organizations and being very careful to avoid things that encroach upon privacy and, you know, have the potential to engender feelings of surveillance and things like that. So this is where I think that um, relational ethical lens would be well warranted for managers in approaching this entire class of technology.
0: Well spoken. I can only hope that managers worldwide will um, follow your advice and, and use these tools ethically. And in fact, that the designers and developers of these tools would will... Develop and design those with with these intents in mind. Okay, um, that was a good conversation. Shall we um? Shall we talk about Shall we talk about some of our favorite things?
1: Absolutely. So I think we were going to do albums, favorite albums, music right? albums. Yeah. yeah, musical albums as opposed to photo photo albums. My favorite is the one. My favorite is the one from two thousand seven. Mine is um
0: years one to three. <laughs> yes.
1: No musical albums. You want to go first? I'll go first.
0: Yeah, I've I've thought about this one long and hard for about ten seconds because that's all all that I need to um, make up my mind about probably my favorite at least in its genre, for sure, my favorite album of all time. And this is 10 by Pearl Jam. Oh, yeah. Which I think came out in 1991, thereabouts.
1: Uh, That was the year I graduated from high school, so that sounds about right. I'll I'll check it while you're talking.
0: I I was about 15 or 16 when it came out. And I just remember playing this album in, in a loop continuously. And every single song in that album is just a, a smash hit. It's just so good. And it was one of the first bands, Pearl Jam that um, you know, that, that represented the grunge movement out of Seattle and that area of, in the US. And they're obviously still alive and kicking today and, and, and writing and, and performing and the, the, such a good band and and it was so original at the time and and eddie Vedder's voice left left such a, a lasting impression on me this kind of rusty yet very expressive voice and and i don't know if you remember any of the videos or the live performances from back in the day but he had this long hair and he kept kind of had this upward gaze when he sang and it was just so um intense and and yeah, I still vividly remember my reaction um, to the music when I was like 15 or 16, and that's just stay with me.
1: Yeah, I'm, uh, I am absolutely a Pearl Jam fan, so I completely agree uh, on that one. And, of course, I remember I love Eddie Vedder's voice, except for when he sang the national anthem for the Cubs or like take me out <laughs> to the ball game for the Cubs when they were playing the Indians, the now Cleveland Guardians, then Cleveland Indians in the World Series. That kind of broke my heart, yeah. <laughs> um, but other than that, uh, absolutely, I completely agree. Again, that was that was the year of my that I graduated from high school, so it was '91, and uh, yeah, that's that's a, those early '90s that Grunge era is a wheelhouse for me for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite album, and I think it is my favorite album, is um, Graceland by Paul Simon. So I'm going back even further than you because Graceland was 1986. And uh, similar to you, every single... I, I love every single song on the album, but it was the... I shouldn't say originality, because basically, you know, the music that he's playing is is very much... Ladysmith Black Mambazo, which is the band that backs him up on much of the album, had been a band for a long time. So this is this South African music, but it, it introduced that sound uh to the united states in in you know there's there's lots of uh, potential for critique here because you have sort of uh, uh, a white guy who has to introduce this south african sound uh musical sound to the u.s but um but it just uh, i loved the Every aspect of it from the beginning and just the, the the rhythms. And it was unique to me. It was certainly, you know, I had not listened to Lady Smith's Black Mombazo before. And so it was such a sort of new experience for me, all of those rhythms. And I I still go back and can listen to that album. When I got a, a vinyl player a couple of years ago for Christmas, the album that uh, Susie got for me with it was uh, Graceland because she knows how much I love it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I got to say, Paul Simon, um, I I don't know that album that well. I know a few songs out of it, but he's such a gifted composer. I mean, he's so melodic and um, I don't know, to me as a, as a non-American, Simon and Simon and Garfinkel have a, or had, I guess a, a unique gift to kind of so expressively portray American life.
1: Yeah. For sure,
0: some yeah, that, that was the background music to some of my my road trips in the U.S. I guess I'm I kind of have um, these memories that um, um, where this music is anchored. So yes, I I'm I'm all with you on this recommendation.
1: All right, so we'll each go back and listen to the the uh, album and the other. Sounds good. That'll be good. Okay. All right. Good discussion.
0: It's been a pleasure.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Later.